Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTID Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Nikolai Morris. Nikolai is a strength and conditioning coach with the men's and women's hockey at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. She also works with Tokyo Olympic silver medalist high jumper Nicola McDermott. Previously, Nikolai worked as an SNC specialist with High Performance Sport New Zealand as the lead of the New Zealand women's hockey team and with the New Zealand rowing in the elite and under-23 and junior pathways. She also worked as the head strength and conditioning coach for the Australian Beach Handball team, Sydney University, and the New South Wales Women's State of Origin team. Nikolai is an ASCA Level 2 Pro Scheme Elite coach and holds a Master's in Strength and Conditioning with over a decade of coaching experience. Welcome to the podcast, Nikolai. It's awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for uh, for helping in terms of the time zones and getting everything organised. It's awesome to finally get it going. No, I'm excited to be here, Rob. Awesome. So give us a bit of the backstory for you. How did you come across sport as a youngster? How, how did you get bitten by the bug and, and how did that love of sport develop? Well, I was um, quite a, a sickly youngster. I was um, a very premier child and I was very severely asthmatic and I was in and out of hospital as a child and um, growing up mostly in Queensland everyone swims like literally everyone it's the perfect climate for it so combined with that and uh, my breathing issues that was just a, a seamless choice so I started out swimming um, I also struggled a lot with most of the other sports because anytime I would run I would get asthma attacks so I got stuck into swimming and I loved it. And there was such a great community around it. So I did that. And then the first year I swam all year round and even through winter, I finally was able to breathe when I ran and started competing and running as well. I was never so much uh, super coordinated in the um, hitting or catching, throwing side of things, even though it was good fun. And I, I tried out pretty much any sport you can do uh growing up in brisbane and yeah just stuck with the uh the old swimming and running all the way through and loved it i was very very averagely talented but i loved loved the work loved learning about movement and and the training around it and yeah i progressed to that until i was about 18 and realized that the rest of the the kids in my age group were going and winning olympic gold medals and I was there pretty average. So I, um, from there, I decided to more focus on my coaching instead. So what did that initial foray into coaching look like? Was that more swimming technical coaching or did you have VR on the physical side of things from the get-go? Yeah, so when I was about 14, 15, um, I did some very basic around my swimming club 
coaching. It wasn't paid. It was just volunteering and helping the kids out. Uh, and then uh, in Australia at age 16, you can get your coaching qualifications. So I went and did that and started coaching Learn to Swim from then on um, and forayed into my more preferred, which was squad coaching and did that for, for quite a few years um, with my strength and conditioning, which I uh, started doing when I finished school. I contacted the place I had trained out of and asked to intern with them and see if they would take me on as a, a little 18 year old who knew absolutely nothing in terms of physiology or <laughs> biology. I was, I was super green and they took me on and allowed me to coach and uh, kind of went from there. So what's that, that coaching career look like as it's unfolded? What are some of the notable stops and kind of highlights along the way? Oh, um, I was, uh, what I would call um, hit very hard by the Dunning-Kruger effect. I worked all the way through uni as an uh, S&C and casual in school and it was a private-based company, but we worked in schools, we worked professional athletes, we worked in clubs. Um, and then I did my internship with the Brisbane Lions AFL club and they paid me to stay on. So I thought being a uni student and being paid as a professional S&C that you know, I was, I was amazing. Uh, who else is getting paid? So I, I thought I was a lot further ahead than I was. In reality, I was terrible. Uh, looking back is, is very cringeworthy. And I was, yeah, what I would call it, the, the peak of Mount Stupid. Um, and I got brought back to the ground very heavily when uh, we didn't have a great year. We went from being expected to make finals and coming third to last I think and uh, a lot of the staff got moved on and there was no position for me so I left I just finished uni and there was just zero coaching jobs available so I kind of floundered around and uh, was working as a sports trainer and a first aid officer and doing massage and basically anything I could private swimming all this coaching to try and stay in sport uh, until a position opened up purely because my friend got asked to do strength and conditioning for rowers at um, the school we both went to. And she had no background in uh, coach, S&C coaching at all. So she uh, put my name forward and I started working at that school for a while and then went to a different school and worked in a few clubs and just trying to regain my understanding of what an SNC coach actually is and being uh, exposed to a whole different amount of environments and different great coaches to learn off. And one big moment for me was uh, working with Grant Jenkins, who you had on um, a few weeks ago. And Grant kind of opened my eyes up. I was very black and white and he opened my eyes up to not just accepting, starting to question why you do things. And we ran a really cool program with uh, a private boys school called the Highlanders Club, which was literally just exposing uh, 12 to 14-ish year old boys, exposing them on different movement and challenging them both on the field and in the amazing gymnastics facility to, to take risks and learn and uh, create. And it was really, really cool. But from there, I um, unfortunately, the school had lost a bit of money uh, and there was less job in essence. There was less hours available. So the gymnastics coach had seen what I'd done in the Highlanders club and asked me to come coach gymnastics to do some extra hours. So I started coaching men's gymnastics with literally no gymnastics background other than I liked doing handstands and I was pretty good at the hanging stuff and I, my brain got movement. So I was coaching these skills that I, I still wouldn't be able to do some of them uh, and did that for a few years and worked at a few more clubs. Uh, had a really great experience with a rugby club where we won the premiership after basically being expected to come last. So that and working with some different schools and then got my first break as a full-time SNC with Sydney Uni which was amazing and got 
exposure to so many great sports and different athletes and was really able to put my mark on how I wanted to be as a strength and conditioning coach and from there got to coach and meet some brilliant athletes like your cousin Marina who is amazing uh, and work with people like Nicol McDermott who uh, got silver in Tokyo on the high jump and still work with and basically from there worked a few contract jobs and um, for about four years doing different uh, representative jobs on top of it and then got uh, a break into New Zealand where I worked with the New Zealand women, uh, men's and women's elite and junior developing rowing team which was amazing to see I, I will never I don't think work with such ridiculously hard-working athletes these athletes go to the end of the world um and there's there's a reason they were so successful in Tokyo and then another opportunity came up with the uh as the national lead of the women's hockey team in New Zealand so crossed over to hockey and did that and that was amazing working with uh some of the most amazing hockey players and getting experience into to hockey and developing and training these girls for the Olympics. And then um, as we all understand with the pandemic, it's, it's pretty hard being away from home and not being able to get there when usually it's a quick three hour trip and yeah, it's, it's completely blocked for you. So um, that decided to, to take me home and I'm heading back to New South Wales in a, a week and a half to start finally in person with the New South Wales Institute of Sport with their men and women's hockey, which is really exciting. I, I can't wait to be there in person. Awesome. Sounds like an awesome journey. I, I think I'd agree with you. I think swimmers and rowers are probably the two sport. If you're work shy, it's not for you because A, you got to get up at the crack of dawn and then B, the sport itself demands incredibly hard workers. So I've always found when I've worked with swimmers that it's kind of just part of the course. If you don't like hard work, you get filtered out pretty early. And I imagine rowing is the same. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Although you can get some sprinters in swimming and then they can be a little bit uh, more where I would like to call myself now, which is avoiding the hard work. <laughs> so wanted, the one of the things that you, you started mentioning, and I kind of want to dig in is, is around that bit around exploring some different movements. And, and it sounds like a really interesting, uh, I guess, and maybe challenging uh, kind of context you had there in that Highlanders club, looking at other things. Because I think that's I've probably had a similar journey to yourself. We're very black and white around, you know, when you come out of uni, you know everything. Everyone should do, you know, deep astagast squats and snatch, and that's going to cure everything. And um, when you soon <laughs> realize, actually, maybe that's not the, the panacea that everyone everyone needs, and maybe there's a bit more to it. And I, I liked uh, hearing some of the stuff you've been talking about with how you've integrated some of those different variations and different activities into SSE programs. So I wanted to dive into that. So I'm assuming... Obviously, having that, that although you weren't a gymnast necessarily yourself, that exposure to the gymnastics environment and variations, that that's where you start to think, hmm, I can take this across somewhere else. What, what did that start to look like for you when you went back to the SNC environment? Yeah, so I, when I was working in gymnastics, I also was coaching in that school. So I saw the, and teaching as well. And I saw some of those athletes who were doing gymnastics and they were always the best movers like far none, they were just so far ahead, so much better control. So started thinking that there's like, I'd always thought that gymnastics is a bit of the, the basis of human movements. Uh, and decided to kind of trial a few things that had worked for gymnastics into S and C. And the, the handstand and hanging was my natural uh, line because that's, when my background more is I'm a pretty terrible tumbler I get dizzy after going in circles once so I understand where tumbling had its place but I went more naturally to the climbing side and the handstand side because I am um, working with sports that have a lot of shoulder injuries that's it just was natural to me so it wasn't a huge start initially. It probably took me a few years to really integrate it down. And I decided to start implementing more and more because it was working and the athletes were getting better control. And 
the moment it really linked in with my SNC was working with the Sydney Uni women's uh, rugby team, where most of them hadn't had a huge amount of exposure to contact sports before. A lot of them were coming in from different sports, whether it be from the track or netball or usually non-contact sports. So these athletes had so many areas we could improve. And we started bringing in, uh, at the end of every Wednesday session, we brought in almost a expression of movement, creativity block where either I would prescribe or as a group, we would decide on some challenges. So we wanted to learn how to do dive rolls. So if they ever got tipped upside down in a scrum, they'd be over or a tackle. They would know where they are in space and potentially save their necks. We wanted to do hanging work, which was often done in their warm-ups as well to, to get comfortable. We'd do things like monkey bars, um, shot, like hanging shoulder taps. We would teach cartwheels. We would teach handstands. We would... Um, we're also really lucky. One of the girls was an ex-high-level gymnast, so I could always use her as my my exemplar when needed. But we just started exposing to all different movements, and I'd also started training at an adult gymnastics company called Delecky Strength, who still I think are just one of the best I've seen in terms of they they approach it like an SNC. They approach it periodized and well planned out rather than just your typical adult sessions, which is just go have fun in the playground that is gymnastics. So I learned a ton and implemented some of the work that they taught me as well, in particular with my swimmers and water polo players and exposing them to a lot of ring work and a lot of hanging work and, um, for me, using handstands for their both their pelvis and trunk stability as well as their shoulder stability, all really linked in for me and it's kind of carried across through my programming. Um, but I think it comes down to the fact that I was never the typical SNC who was just obsessed with the gym. I, I, I really enjoyed it, but for me, squatting wasn't the be all and end all. I liked movement. I liked watching people move, whether that be in the gym, on the turf, on the field, wherever. So it linked in with this natural way my brain works of its movement. If we can transfer the movement across and get it to work, that's that's what I was aiming for, essentially. Mm, I think I would second that experience that you had. Like, that's exactly the experience I've had. Um, <clears throat> I worked a little bit with uh, the EIS for a while as a contractor in, as part of their trampoline program down in Bournemouth. And I remember seeing what these guys did as a warm-up and thinking, geez, that is a full-blown session for 90% of the athletes that I know. And I'm, I'm not talking about the 18-year-olds. I'm talking about the 10-year-olds. Like, oh, yeah. you know, what, what these kids do. And I'm thinking, geez, this is, uh, there's some next-level stuff here. But what you're saying about, you know, especially, you know, in any, like, diving, trampoline, gymnastics, if you know where you're in space, when you're upside down and you're rotating and you're flexed, there's something there that, that is a useful quality in combat sports, like as well as all the robustness and closed kinetic chain stuff of your handstands, your, your hanging work, et cetera. And I think that's where, for me, the penny started to drop and I started to think, okay, these guys aren't training like we got taught at uni. They're not back squatting. They're not doing bench press. They're not doing these, you know, these exercises. They're on, in unbelievable condition and they can do things that the guys who can back squat and bench press can't do. So there's something here that I don't know enough about. And I think maybe we had one lecture at uni on, on gymnastics because, you know, it was, it, I guess, maybe still seen as that kind of specialist bit. But there's definitely, I would completely agree with you that there's utility in those exercises. But I think maybe the hesitancy is, is people don't come from it with that gymnastics background. So like you say, unless you have an athlete who, you know, has that gymnastics background you can say okay you know demo a handstand or you know if you come in at fresh as i don't know a 25 year old or 27 year old or 30 year old and going okay i'm going to teach gymnastics having never done this before it's a colossal barrier to jump definitely and i think exposing yourself to it whether it be getting a coach going to a, a group um it's definitely more popularized now with crossfit there's a lot more uh, adult gymnastics or handstand courses online and 
that's a lot easier to find now, um, being that handstands and a lot of um, work like that is being done in the CrossFit arena. So I think giving it a shot yourself and exposing yourself to it is really, really important because otherwise you just have no idea what you're prescribing because it is so different. It's not like you could technically prescribe a lunge variation without ne- without ever doing that specific variation, knowing how it would feel having done a bunch of other different lunge variations. But if you've never done a handstand, you, you have absolutely no, it's so different and being inverted is such a different place. And I think that's, that exposure to yourself and practicing yourself is such a fun learning experience. It brings you back into that play mode, which is where most people join sport from. They don't join sport to go, oh, I just love running in circles. Let's do that. It's, this is fun. I get to train with the community. I really enjoy it. It's play. That's why, that's what we do as kids. So bringing that learning experience uh, by learning new skills and bringing back that play into our brains, I think is really, really beneficial to, to everyone, not even SNCs. I think it's just an awesome part uh, of, of living. Yeah, and I think there's an important point that you touched on there, and I've heard other people like Jeremy Frisch talk about this and a lot of other people just like, if all you get out of it is, is learning how to get out of bad situations, then you've, it's actually an injury prevention strategy. Like if you can forward roll when you're off momentum or you can roll over your shoulder when you're going backwards or like you just, your natural reaction is not to stick your hands out, it's to tuck and to, you know, create a circle and roll. You potentially avoid a whole load of issues. And I've actually seen this working with young rugby players like I have done for the last five years within Scottish rugby. There's a load of players who can't do that. And that's a fundamental part of, of things going wrong on the pitch. If you can't roll out of something that didn't happen quite right, or you can't, you know, you can't stick your head in the right place and roll over your shoulder and you get spat out, right? You're going to pick up all these little things or you're going to find yourself in the wrong place and not know how to deal with it. So I think it is a fundamental skill for those kind of contact sports. And that's one of the reasons I've started doing a lot, a lot more of that with my athletes, which, you know, as you can expect, gets interesting when you, when you talk about a warm-up and going, yeah, we're going to do plyos here, forward rolls here, and, and you know, some handstand uh, wheelbarrow walks over here. You get some interesting looks because it's not necessarily what they're used to. But I do think injury prevention from a, from a collision perspective, there's a huge benefit. But also yeah. when we look at some of that rehab, prehab strength side of things, we're getting a load of loading in the closed kinetic chain capacity, aren't we? When you talk about a handstand, like we're talking about... I mean, if you compare that to a military press, you're getting a heck of a lot more out of a handstand potentially than a military press, aren't you? Definitely. And knowing myself, I've, I've had shoulder injuries my entire life, the joys of being a swimmer. But I can get really, really uncomfortable doing a military press very early on. Whereas a handstand, I have no pain, but I'm getting a similar effect. So, yeah, I know which one I prefer to do more often. Hmm. It was certainly something that uh, I, I chatted to other coaches about this, like the lockdown really forced my skill set into a new zone because I mean, especially programming for 15, 16 year old kids, it was right. Okay. What have we got? Probably next to no kit. Okay. So we've got your body weight. So we're talking loads of, you know, unilateral variations, but how are we going to get an upper body stimulus here? So, you know, it became a lot of tempo work, isometric pauses, but I started looking into more and more into this. Okay. Can we do a, you know, a wall walk up? We do these things. And I think that's where my, um, prescription skills of things outside of a barbell or a dumbbell started to expand because I was like, right, okay, how would I progress this? Well, okay, maybe the leverage or maybe the duration of an isometric hold or we'll go isometric to concentric. So I think it expanded my toolbox as a coach delving into this variation, but I think you're right in that people avoid it because it's not as easy as going, well, do three sets of 10 at 50% and then do three sets of 10 at 55% and then 60, you know, like it's not as black and white. You might have to think outside the box a bit. I think um, you're 100% right, though. I think lockdown forced most of us to learn to become more creative. I think, if anything, it's it's going to have been one of the greatest things, apart from the, the job losses, um, one of the greatest things for the SNC industry. Hmm. So let's say someone's, you know, a, co- a coach in a position a bit like us wants to start integrating this stuff. So they're going away and they're exposing themselves to it 
is maybe they don't have the background in gymnastics. So they're going down to a local adult gymnastics club or they're looking at some of the, the content online. Where would you start? So let's say, you know, if you've got a group of rugby players or a group of soccer players or hockey players, whatever it is, based on your experience and what, what's worked and what hasn't worked, where would you say is a useful starting point? My key, my probably three starting points on the different areas, so your tumbling, your handstands, your hanging work, would be I would start in the warm-ups adding, your, if you're not already, adding the animal movements. If you can bear crawl, you're getting that kind of load through your shoulder. If you can wheelbarrow, walk, you need to be able to control your trunk. You need to be able to control it through your shoulders and building it that way. So that would be my initial start in terms of the work you would do on a handstand. And then my usual initial go-to in a handstand is literally just giving them an opportunity. For me, chest to wall is always where you go first. Um, it's not the easiest to come out of like a back to wall, but it's much easier in terms of learning a handstand and it has much better transference. So getting someone to literally walk up the wall to where they're comfortable and hold it. So that could literally be a plank on the wall or it could be a nose to the wall, proper chest wall handstand. So it's very easy to grade it on what your ability and fear around it is because it is something that a lot of people have fear around because they've never gone upside down it, it's different from there if you ideally um if there's mats soft mats like crash mats available just especially if you've got older athletes because it's been a lot longer for a lot of them they haven't done this tumbling work so starting on your log rolls or your front rolls and getting them comfortable and understanding where to tuck their head rather than having it out and landing either on the head or winding themselves as they roll and getting them more comfortable. Um, always the forward roll, roll before the backwards roll, that's a lot more here. If you ever have um, wedges available, uh, sadly not the food type, um, the gymnastics box available, they're some of the best tools in terms of you can do forward and backwards rolls down there. You can learn where to put yourself without having risk of falling. And you've also got the momentum because it is a downward slope. So that would be where I would look from a rolling point of view initially. Um, commando rolls, all of that kind of stuff to get people comfortable because you will have in most groups, maybe not as much in young males, but definitely in older and also your female groups you'll have a couple that just have fear of it um so just getting them comfortable because again like we said earlier it, it will most likely happen in a game at some point so knowing how to roll how to put yourself in that position being aware in space is so essential and then on the hanging stuff i usually add that into majority of my programs i think being able to do a dead hang um on the uh, not on the rings on the bar is important for every athlete's shoulder i've also seen unreal results just doing dead hangs active hangs and hanging shrugs to take away most people's shoulder pain it's actually ridiculous how much shoulder pain is just eliminated from that minimal stimuli like two sets of 30 to 60 seconds of hanging or two sets of two three sets of 10 hanging shrugs and you can feel when your scaps just not in the right place like it's sticking and it allows you to work through that range and it's just yeah one of the best stimuli i think for any shoulders you can do and um i recommend it in yeah any any warm-up or program before you start going on to the the more exciting stuff but the reality is these days most kids you chucked them on a monkey bars wouldn't be able to do it which is pretty terrifying uh we need to put them back in schools regardless of the the broken arms that often happen for young kids i think it's just so important for us we, we know that grip strength is related to overall health uh in gen pop so hanging is yeah one of the number ones for me for all athletes to be able to do yeah, it's one of the things that I've started hiding in my programs a bit 
um, by like integrating with our abdominal work. So doing a lot of pain, like knee tucks or leg raises. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, we could do this on the floor. We could do our dead bugs, but once we've progressed past dead bugs, how are we going to make this a bit, a bit trickier? Right. Well, I'm going to use some levers, whether that's, you know, half your femur or your femur in, in your shank, but also while we're doing that, I'm getting a good 60 seconds here. Um, so I've, st I've started kind of, you know, hiding, hiding the vegetables in, in amongst the meat, but I think it's what you've, you've put there is really interesting just as some starting points, because it's stuff that people might not think of. They most might think it's too simple, like to start with a bear crawl. But actually, you're right. You're getting like loading through your wrist in a similar position. You're getting, um, you know, that proprioception around the shoulder, a bit of your body weight, wheelbarrow walks. You know, it's it doesn't need to be super complicated. But I think it is important, as you said, because I think, well, from, certainly from my experience, it's surprising how many people don't have those skills and are lacking real basic things that you might take for granted. And yeah, okay, we can get stronger in our, you know, single leg squat we can get stronger in this but these are things that are like i don't know it's a bit like it's a bit chaos training isn't it like what happens yeah. when what happens when shit gets real do you know where you are in space can you get yourself out of that position a back squat is probably not going to do that for you no we want to transfer as well so if if you're doing something yes you need a foundation of strength the gym is important but if we can kind of link it more closely to the sport without replicating the sport it's going to transfer and it's going to transfer the stuff you're doing in the gym because then there's that link. It's not this divide, this gaping chasm that no one's linking together. So, yeah, and, and you can make it fun too. Like chuck a five kilo weight on a bear crawl, back, you're back for a bear crawl, make it a relay. If it comes off, you go back to the start. Like that's so much fun. The athletes love it and they're learning without realising, which is the best type of learning. Mm. I think, yeah, it's a lot of it is good coaches can hide stuff in a game, can't they? And get what they want, put enough um, constraints around the game. So like what you've just described there, literally this evening, I had a session with 14 kids in it for my stuff. And, you know, we were going skipping into forward rolls, into bear crawls. We had a cone in your back because that cone gives you feedback. If your hips roll over the show, you drop off, you know, crab walks, et cetera. It's all that kind of stuff that we're talking about because... I've realized over the years, it's far more interesting than going, right, we're going to do these dynamic stretches and then we're going to do this, you know, okay, let's do this as a little circuit. I'm going to skip in into your forward rolls into this, you know, it's, it's way more interesting, which gets buy-in, but it also just allows you to give, you know, if you plan the activity well enough, you get those constraints that then will guide it for you and you don't need to coach as much. Exactly right. And it's, again, it's fun. They're exploring and unlike the gym we tend not to overcoach when we're doing this exploration of movement so it is that that learning and that feedback is self-driven so it retains so much stronger in the athletes so i think it's super valuable and it sounds like a really fun session yeah it's uh it's been an interesting one not so funny if you're six foot seven in the second row i think they uh, yeah. maybe don't like me as much as the, the little scrum house but it is what maybe it is drops. <laughs> so let's talk about contraindications. So where would you say, look, here's some red flags. You know, there might be some rules, some principles or rules of thumb generally, but here's some some things that might highlight is actually it's probably not right for that person. Yeah. So uh, as you say, it, it's completely individual, and it's usually where the the athlete has real fear, real proper fear, or a really problematic past injury. Usually I will still add minimal stimuli, similar where possible, especially if it's in a sport that is uh, what I would deem quite relevant to doing this work um, and build it back in if it's an injury. But if there's real fear, you've got to start why there's fear, where it comes from, how to overcome it. And basically if, some, if they've really hurt themselves tumbling before, they, they just may never be comfortable with it and it may be working out a different way to get the same kind of stimuli um but trying to work through that fear and lessen it if you can't eliminate it because yeah if you if you had a serious neck injury trying to forward roll or backwards roll you're probably not going to be very comfortable with doing it so that and then your shoulder elbow injuries i usually do typically try and add it in um the big one the handstands in my case that is um generally eliminates it is severe wrist injury so when i was working with rowing we had quite a few who had really really 
bad wrist injuries in the past, multiple surgeries. Chucking them on a handstand is just, it's, it's stupid. It's cost benefit is nil. You're not going to get what you need out of it. You're just going to hurt them. So wrist injury is probably one where I wouldn't be adding some of that work in. However, I'd be using some of the principles around wrist, wrist strengthening to get them to a point where they're rehabbing it better. They're not as in, uh, not as in as much pain, but yeah, putting them in a handstand again just isn't going to be a good idea ever, really. Mm, I think it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, it's the I mean, we live in the Instagram era where people go, "Oh yeah, that's cool, I'll do that." But it's like going through this mental in your head and going, "Is this you know?" If this goes wrong and the head coach to me says to me, why on earth was that player who has multiple wrist injuries doing handstands, you're probably going to have struggled to, to put a, a good rationale across. So, you know, using your brain is always, uh, always advised with this kind of stuff. <laughs> but I have found it interesting, like, you know, as I've, as I've kind of watched people who are more uh, advanced than me in terms of the late stage rehab. So people are like lock on Wilmot with some of his sh shoulder stuff. I've been looking at it and thinking, like that just makes so much sense. Like, how do we get a high threshold, high intensity load through our shoulder? And he's got people doing handstand kickups. I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Like, but sometimes we it takes a rehab thing for us to think, well, hang on, what if we started doing this before we got broken? What if we started getting guys and girls strong in these ranges of motion and, and competent in in these positions before there was you know a shoulder surgery required? And I think that lends quite nicely to the to the rehab, you know, and prehab um, kind of side of things. But yeah, it's a real interesting scenario because I think maybe we're starting to see people kind of go beyond. I had a really um, interesting conversation with a colleague of mine, Ross Ford, a few months ago. And we were kind of saying, you know, the, the kind of hangover of S&C from maybe the 1970s or 80s where, you know, if you did back squats, bench and deadlift and chin-ups, you were kind of ahead of the game because people didn't strength train. But things have moved on, but we kind of have this mentality of, oh, all you need is this stuff. And it's like, well, that's because that worked 40 years ago. But since then, now everyone back squats and deadlifts and does chin-ups. So maybe that's not the defining factor about whether you win or lose. But I think these holes are potentially things that we could plug that are a bit more holistic in an athlete's program. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, with the late stage rehab, it was quite funny. We had a staff meeting the other week and one of the, um, one of the staff came out with a comment of basically when someone's injured, we go so far in depth in their program, everything's individualized. Why don't we do this stuff before they get injured? We need to look at it like everyone is an N equals one and where possible, obviously there are huge constraints. If you've got a hundred people in front of you and there's just you, it's uh, not gonna be so easy, but using these constraints to, to systemize it and, and work it out. But there's so much cool stuff with shoulders that we could be doing. Like some of the, um, some of the exercises I learned doing adult gymnastics, uh, I tried and I um, did a session with a friend of mine at Auckland Rugby and was showing them some of the different uh, progressions that I use. And it, the last one is a single arm rotation. So you're hanging on a bar and you allow yourself to completely rotate and then you use your lap to rotate yourself back slowly. And he was a he's a strong guy he's coordinated uh he does all the right stuff he got up and he swung around in a circle so quickly because he just didn't have that ability to control now for me that's that's so important if you've got a shoulder-based athlete so that i started using that um a heap before i moved over here uh with my swimmers and my water polo players being able to single arm hang is actually quite terrifying if you've ever had a shoulder injury. There's a lot of um, like red light in your brain. You just, it's just saying, stop, this is awful. So progressing someone to a single arm hang, I think is uh, a really great way to take away that, that fear of past injury or past issues or just inexperience being in that movement in general. Mm. there's one um, anecdote that I wanted to dig into because it's it, it maybe sits outside some of the kind of tumbling handstand hanging work which was when I heard you talking about some of the the kind of back bridging work um, and how that kind of helped your high jumper so dig into that a little bit for us because I think that's an interesting story yeah so I started working with Nick five or six years ago and she is your typical baby giraffe she's 
six two, I think. Um, and she is so tall and lanky. So she hadn't got full control of her body. And in high jump, you need quite a good arch over the bar. Otherwise, your, your glutes will knock the bar off. So being quite comfortable in that range is really important. Now, Nick had a few um, challenges. She has scoliosis, and it's um, not a good scoliosis. Uh, so that's always going to be a challenge for her. She's also, not anymore, but was very, very weak in her upper body. She didn't need it, so she hadn't been using it. Couldn't do a chin-up, really, really struggled with her upper body. So it's one that we've worked on a lot over the years. Uh, she also had quite poor trunk stability. So kind of linked all this in. She also did handstand walk-ups and handstand holds, which is really cool seeing the progression over the years where previously she would kind of snake up as she'd walk, her trunk would be all over the place. And now she can hold a nice stiff trunk, which is great. But we started doing um, just a simple back bridge hold to start with. And she couldn't lock out her arms, they were bent. Um, she couldn't push her hips all the way up. It was really, really uh, average to start with. And then we progressed to what I would call a back bridge rock, where you're in a back bridge position and you're shifting uh, the weight towards your shoulders and then to your feet. So you're aiming to push out into uh, a straight legged back bridge, which um, is what a gymnast would typically look like when they do a back bridge. Very, very big arch, nice straight legs. Then we started doing some work on kickovers. So we initially started with her getting into the position rather than hand standing into it. And we'd do it on a big box. So she barely had to kick over and I would assist her. And then we slowly progressed down in the boxes and she would handstand into the position. And over the last, I think we've been doing it for at least four years, over the last four years, she can now handstand into it and kick straight back over with power. And you can see how much that has helped her in her positioning over the bar. She's able to be aware in space. She's allowed to get herself into that good arch position and kick her feet over without her heels touching and knocking off the bar, which is usually where most get into trouble. So it's been a really cool progression. I think it's been a really valuable one. She still does it the day before competition um, as part of her primer, which is cool. I think what's important there is, is you've kind of mapped out that journey, you know, over four years. I like that. Like, because it shows to people how progressive you should be with this stuff. Like it's not, we're not going to have you freehand standing and doing kickups by the end of the month. Like this is like any other stimulus. It's we're working towards this. So maybe we drip feed, you know, five minutes of it in your warm up or at the end of a session with the end game of like, yeah, it'd be great to get to gear. We might never get there, but it's not something we're going to rush. Cause I think like anything, if we rush it, that's when we'll pick up those kind of niggles. So I like the fact that you've kind of said, you know, this, this hasn't been, this, this, it's effectively an Olympic cycle. It's not, it's not one season. Yeah. I've, I've also, I'm really lucky. Her, her coach is, I think the master of long-term athlete development. They've been working together since they were, she was 10 years old. So that's 14 or so years. And most coaches, when they get someone who is so talented, will try and rush them through and get them to be elite immediately. He had, and he said to her when she was 10 years old, I've got a 10-year plan for you if you want to come on this journey. And he never pushed her to something too early. And it's always been this slow development. And I don't know many elite athletes, any many athletes in general, 24, who have been doing this sport for 14 plus years and have either PB'd or equal PB'd every single year. That's just mind-blowing. I couldn't do that when I was an average swimmer let alone an Olympic medalist. Like it just shows how if you try not to rush, if you try and do things the right way and progress, just how valuable valuable it is. And, and Matt Wonsall's done an unreal job with Nick. And we've still got so much we can improve on with her because we didn't try and rush her through, which I think's yeah, the main thing. Don't try and put people's ceiling down too quickly. Yeah, I think uh I think as an industry, we like to talk about long-term athlete development and then turn it into short-term athlete development because we like to say, hey, look how great a coach I am. 
And I think, uh, yeah, we definitely like to microwave our athletes rather than slow cook them sometimes and it's to, the, to their detriment. So yeah, that's definitely an interesting, I mean, just as a case study, not many athletes stick with their coach for 14 years full stop, Never mind 14 years and successful, so. And uh, we're planning to 2032. So, you know, that's pretty impressive. Mm. So what's next for you in the next 12 to 18 months? You've obviously got a new role which you're settling into. What, what else is coming down the pipeline? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting one because of uh, we're still quite restricted with COVID with hockey. So uh, leaning into that role is a big one for me. I really want to make sure I can do a great job of it. And then uh, with Nick, we've got both World Champs and Commonwealth Games, which is going to be a really nice week-long turnaround between the two competitions. So hopefully try and uh, upgrade silver to gold at World Champs and try and break the Commonwealth Games record is um, some goals that we're looking for. Uh, for me, I just want to pick up as much. I'm so lucky to have Alex Matera as my boss so and some unbelievable colleagues around me. So just learn as much as possible from them and, yeah, just try and kick away a few projects and, and little things that inevitably come up and just keep working to be um, the best coach. And on a personal level, my, my big goal is to do my first pole vault competition, which is my new challenge, which is great fun to learn. Yeah, I saw some clips of that. So that, that's a, a new skill you've taken up recently now, I think. Yeah, I think just under 12 months I've been learning and very interrupted 12 months, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, again, it's kind of linking that gymnastics and the joy of sprinting. And I think just having that ability to, and opportunity to have and learn a new sport or a new challenge or a new skill, just, that's just one of the best things. And as a coach, being able to go put yourself back as a novice and, and relearning how to do things that aren't natural to you gives you so much empathy and it helps your communication with those novice athletes incredibly. It's, yeah, one of the best things I think I've started doing over the last few years is learning new skills and being able to put myself in that novice mindset. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree. It's, I mean, COVID's been it's the same for me and that it's interrupted it, but I, I started... It seems like every other SNC coach in the world started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But I, I remember when I first walked into the place and I thought I felt a bit nervous and I, I thought, geez, I wonder if this is how athletes feel when they walk into the gym with me for the first time. And I started having that empathy. What you're saying is actually, oh, it's been a long time since I've not known what I'm doing. Or like, you know, someone does a demonstration, you think I've completely missed that. I've got no idea what's going on. Actually, I'm going to be that person who says, sorry, can I see that again? You know, yep. it's, we're obviously very confident in our domain because we're experts in that domain, but it, yeah we forget what it's like to be a beginner sometimes yeah definitely and let's be honest uh no one likes doing things that they're not good at and we'll all have athletes in our groups like there's always a couple that don't like the gym and it's not because they don't like lifting the weight it's because usually they're the best and in the gym they're not it's not their strength so they shy away from it or they don't come and so being able to understand why they're in that headspace allows you to have those conversations and build that trust and buy-in and, and work out how to get them doing what you need from them in a way that they're happy with as well. Mm. So, I mean, you've, you've mastered inverting on the ground. So time to do it five, six feet in the air. Is, is that the thought process? <laughs> I'd like to be five, six feet. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very, very low. Um, no, I just think it's, it's just such a cool sport and I had no exposure to it as a child and it's just uh, one that I would like to, to challenge and um, I think in the air linking in that gymnastics stuff is something that is more natural and just kind of linking in the 17,000 parts of pole vault and link them all in and get them all right together which is incredibly challenging and uh, a colleague of mine who's a few months behind me and learning the other day goes, oh, I get one thing right. And then there's 17 other things that go wrong. Like I can't think of them all at once. There's too many things. And it's very accurate in pole vault, uh, how it feels. But yeah, I think it's just an awesome opportunity to, to learn a new challenge and see how I go competing, which could be an epic fail. But I mean, 
putting yourself out there and being vulnerable is is important for us as humans so i'm gonna give it a crack yeah no credit to you and i think it's it makes you credible with athletes as well right because um they see that you put your money where your mouth is you're not just going to sit in your your ivory tower and say yeah i'm good at everything and and never look like you're incompetent or look like you're not sure this is going to go really well to, to kind of say i'm going to put my my face out on the line and say this could go really well or it could go completely you know bottoms up but you know the fact that you're going to give it a crack i think you know you'll probably uh, find athletes you know back that yeah they they enjoy it and the athletes i've been working with this year i've shown them my progressions and they yeah they're they're really respectful of it even though i'm terrible uh they've been so lovely in their feedback of oh you're improving <laughs> kind of so where can people find out more about you about what you're doing about some of the, the other bits and bobs you're involved in where's the best place to hunt you down uh usually either um more typically instagram and email are probably where i go to most but um twitter i'm on every now and then as well uh but my instagram and twitter are the same um at nikolai underscore morris and my email um i can give to you rob if you want to put in in the notes if anyone ever wants to um shout out i'm a big believer in uh giving back and, and teaching people and giving people who want to ask questions uh the, the answers that maybe I wouldn't have had the courage to ask when I was younger or didn't know how to. So um, I'm always happy for people to reach out and ask more questions. Hmm. Well, thanks for your time today and thanks for sharing your experience. It's been really useful for, for me personally and hopefully I think people will take a lot of uh, value from that as well. So thanks for, uh, for getting up early to jump on the call. <laughs> no, thanks for having me, Rob. It was great chatting. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram using the account at LTAD Network, as well as Twitter at LTAD Network, and find our website www.ltadnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform, as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. Oh, you know, man, you know, man, you know, man.